Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. Back in 1988, as I started work on my oral history book about the LGBTQ civil rights movement, I was determined to include a mix of voices from places other than just the major East and West Coast cities. But I had a limited budget, so I had to choose carefully and combine multiple cities into the few trips I could afford. Once I had interviews lined up in California and Washington State, I decided to add Alaska, which I thought would provide an unexpected and rarely heard perspective on the movement. The fact that my best friend Leslie lived in Juneau may have factored into my decision as well. She had just given birth to her first child, so a visit to Alaska meant I'd also get to meet baby Jane, and I'd have a free place to stay. In Alaska is where I met Sarah Besser, a soft-spoken activist in her late 30s who was drawn into the LGBTQ civil rights movement by the AIDS crisis. Watching from Juneau as the AIDS epidemic swept across the lower 48 states, Sarah joined with other local lesbians and gay men to organize and prepare for when people in their own community would begin to fall ill. That's how Sarah became a founding member of Shanti of Juneau, an organization patterned after the Shanti organization in San Francisco, which supported people diagnosed with HIV-AIDS during the early days of the epidemic. She was also a founding member of SIGLA, the Southeast Alaska Gay and Lesbian Alliance. And at the time I interviewed her, Sarah was president of the Committee for Equality, a statewide board that worked for equal rights for LGBTQ Alaskans. She also worked full-time for the city government as a building inspector. So here's the scene. Sarah picks me up in front of the Baranoff Hotel in downtown Juneau, and we drive out to the Mendenhall Valley to the modest cottage where Sarah lived with her then-partner. Sarah bears an uncanny resemblance to one of my high school friends, with her Dorothy Hamill-style wedge haircut, oversized glasses, and her woodsy jeans and sweater outfit. Sarah is understated and self-effacing, but once we sit down to talk, I quickly discover that she's a savvy behind-the-scenes organizer, and she's unwavering in her advocacy, even if that means going way beyond her comfort zone. I start out by asking Sarah when she first learned about homosexuality. 
Interview with Sarah Besser, Saturday, November 18, 1989, at 2 p.m., at the home of Sarah Besser in Juneau, Alaska. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. When I was um, like a junior in high school, I think I first heard the word gay and asked what it meant. Within an hour, I had decided that's what I was, and I was real excited to know that I fit somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Had you thought up to that point that there was something wrong? I just knew that I was um, not traditional and that I wasn't dating boys. I have three younger sisters, and I just was definitely out of step with their interests and my many of my friends' interests mm-hmm. in boys. And I just had a sense that I was sort of an odd duck. But then when I heard the word gay and the description of it's, you know, two women who spend their lives together or two men who spend their lives together, I thought, all right, that's perfect. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah. This would have been the 1960s. That would have been 1968. 1968. Mm-hmm. Did you did you hear anything in 1969? Was there anything published here about what went on in New York, the riots? Not that I mm-hmm. heard of in Juneau. Mm-hmm. Juneau back then only had one TV station, and we got all the news like two weeks later than the lower 48, as we call it. We didn't get a lot of current news, and at that age I didn't read the papers consistently. So. Right. Were you fearful at all when you realized what where you fit in? My realization was that it was just like an hour in time. I took my dog for a walk and I thought about the conversation. And I realized that that gay was what I was. My parents weren't going to like it, Mm -hmm. but that was okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it wasn't scary. It was Uh kind of exciting, but I didn't talk to anybody about it for a couple years after that. It's just like I, I knew that it was sort of hush-hush just from the tone of the conversation where it had come up. So when did you finally talk to somebody about it? It, the big it. The big it. When I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You started college in 69? 70. 70. Mm-hmm. I sort of put out feelers. I'd talk about unusual women or women who like women, and nobody ever responded with the type <laughs> of response that, thought, that I thought I could go any further with. Yeah. So. Actually, probably the first person I really talked to about it was um, somebody I met on an archaeological dig who also turned out was, was a lesbian. And uh, Here in Alaska? No, that was down in, in Washington State, actually. Uh-huh. And we were a whole summer at an archaeological site. It was great to have somebody to, to be open with. Mm-hmm. It was a real wonderful feeling. So with whom you could be yourself. Yeah, right. How then did you move from from that stage of your life to... Well, I started school, I left Juneau, right away from high school, and I left Juneau. Um, Where did you go to school? First I went to Stockton, California, Mm -hmm. University of the Pacific, and then I went to University of Oregon, and then I moved to Seattle to finish up a degree in anthropology. I'd sort of made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to move back to Juneau unless I came back with a partner, because when I left I didn't know if there were any other women and lesbians in Juneau. And even at that young age, I thought it wouldn't, it would be very lonely to be here mm-hmm. as a lesbian. So I ended up in Seattle. And so I moved there in 1973 and stayed until 1982 when mm-hmm. Carol and I moved here. Did you have thoughts then on, on the issue of gay rights? Uh... It's funny, you know, um, when I was ni- in 1975 or early 76, I was living with my partner named Breyer outside of Seattle. Carol. No, another part. Susan was mm-hmm. her name, my partner at that time. Um, and uh, we were living in a little tiny one-bedroom house that had only wood heat 
and only cold running water. And life was not easy. And uh, we were sort of talking about aspirations or future or something. And I said, well, someday when I get to be an old fart, I'm going to be a gay rights activist, mm -hmm. which seemed totally out of line with my past or my that present even. What about being an activist interested you? What was there that wasn't right that needed to be corrected? Well, the fact that um, I had to lead a double life. I've been raised to be an honest, outgoing, inclusive, sincere individual. And I had come to this point in my life where I could not be all those things with most people anymore because if I got to know them too well, they would know about me being gay and I would either run the risk of losing that person as a friend or as an associate who's easy to work with. So I started having to be more withdrawn and less sincere and less direct and, and uh, people still liked me and people still respected me and people still thought I was a good person. The fury was people could like me and hate gay people and that I was being quiet about it. Mm -hmm. So someday I knew I had to speak up. I mm -hmm. thought I was going to put it off till I was an old fart. But AIDS came, see, and I realized you can't postpone forever what's important to you because you might not get to be an old fart. Mm -hmm. You moved back here in 82, and at the time you had no specific plans about getting involved in gay rights activism. Or... Mm -mm. I really, from that conversation at that little house in Briar, I didn't do anything about gay rights except get on various newsletter lists. Mm -hmm. What was it that changed things then? When you decided to speak out? Well, I guess the first thing that happened was I started reading about a lot of uh, gay men were dying around the country from this unknown disease, AIDS, that, uh, and some of the horror stories were coming through of not only were they ill and dying from this frightening disease, but they were also being abandoned by their families and losing their jobs and losing the insurance and legislation was on the horizon to quarantine homosexual people, etc. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I and Carol and Frank and Scott and a couple other friends, Carolyn and Mary Lou, we just uh, we got together an AIDS training seminar here for the city of Juneau. Before we get to that, yeah. uh, this was not a, a women's issue though. Why then were you, why, why, why did it become an issue for you? Well, the issue for me was that um, homosexual rights were at stake. And it occurred to me that if the men lost their rights, I lost mine. But more than that, it was like they're being discriminated against, not just because they're sick, but because they're homosexual. I'm also homosexual, and I need to stand up with them or else it's just them, and it's only half the picture. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just didn't seem right to stand by and let them take all of the heat. Mm -hmm. So how did you go? Did you call a meeting? Did someone else call a meeting? How did it? How did it come about? Somehow they put out a call. I don't know how the grapevine works. I don't know where it started exactly, but to the uh, gay men and lesbians in Juno. That was the first time you you all got together. That's the first time I knew there. I saw gay men's faces and knew they were gay in Juno. I saw a lot of my women friends and. Uh huh. Did you have a sense of impending doom at that point? About is it? It's hard to imagine being here because I was in New York. Uh huh. And we were surrounded. We didn't see AIDS coming from uh, from a distance. It was just there. Mm -hmm. um, did you have a sense of being here and watching what was happening in other parts of the country, uh, mm -hmm. and, and feeling a need to prepare? Was that any that was a big part 
a need to prepare. And actually, we did gear up to take care of people. And what we ended up doing instead was mostly educating mm-hmm. people, putting on trainings. Because the numbers of people who were ill in Juneau did not go up as we expected. Mm-hmm. How did people react to you when you went out? Any particular place that stands out in your mind that you went to speak? Oh, the Seroptimists. They were my favorite. The what? The Seroptimists. It's a women's group. It's like a philanthropic group, um, educated business women types, church women, and, you know, the upstanding women of the greater Juno community. Uh, they wanted an AIDS education talk during their lunch. And so I got it set up for me to go as sort of, I was co-coordinator of Shanti at that time. And then I had one of our nurses, Kim, who was going to speak with me. Well, Kim canceled at the last minute. And there it was just me, and I had never done the, the medical part, the safe sex part, the how to use condoms and all that stuff. And, I, and here's these women eating their lunch right in front of me. <laughs> and I got going, and, and I, uh, I just remembered I was embarrassed, and they were embarrassed, and we kind of all chuckled about it. <laughs> but they did good. They, they were uh-huh. a responsive group. They looked a little astounded at some of my brochures and my comments. Were they aware that you were lesbian? No. No. Not directly. See, that was the thing with Shanti was that um, it seemed important to keep uh, Shanti, to keep the lesbian gay men issue sort of subdued in Shanti so that we could get heterosexual people to be involved too. Mm -hmm. And so that our outreach would be accepted by the greater community. And people wouldn't view us just as a gay and lesbian group or view our services as just for gay men. What is the argument, and I, and I have heard this, particularly in the organized communities in New York and Los Angeles, mm-hmm. that once again women are being put in the position of taking care of men, mm-hmm. that men make the mess and women clean up. Mm-hmm. And here's the AIDS mess. The men couldn't keep their pants zip, and now the women are here taking care of them. Um, and I've heard this expressed a number of times and read articles about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, actually, I think, I don't know, I, I guess I'm sort of thinking it's not fair to get mad at the men for doing something that caused AIDS when they didn't know it was causing right. AIDS when they were doing it. I right. think that's, it's like, it's can't blame Monday them. morning quarterback or right. whatever, Tuesday morning quarterback. You can't say you shouldn't have thrown the pass. Didn't know. Mm-hmm. The guy was going to intercept it. Let's face it. <laughs> uh I agree that a lot of women end up taking care of men, per se, as part of this AIDS struggle. I felt resentful at first when I first thought about it. And in retrospect, you know, I think that AIDS made me realize I can make a difference. If we took individuals, put them together, got state grants, we're an organization now, and we're respected by health and social services and ministers and we, we let ourselves shine, and we were respected. I think I gained incredible courage. I mean, if I can talk about AIDS on TV, I can probably say to somebody I know and care about, I'm a lesbian, you know? there's. <laughs> Has AIDS had a positive or negative impact on gay rights issues? On gay rights, rights issues? Ultimately, do you think, looking at it now, just from your own experience? From my own experience? Yeah. I, I think that... Ultimately, it's going to be positive in that um, gay men and gay and lesbian women will have connected, will work together, will get to know each other. 
I think both sides will gain courage and learn to lobby for what they believe in and, and they will learn to stand up for what they believe in. But more important on a personal one-to-one -one level, I think uh, the whole nation's talking about sexuality. Um, if people keep coming out, partly as instigation of AIDS, you know, has forced people out of the closet. You know, hi mom, I'm, I'm sick and by the way, I'm homosexual. You know, a lot of parents have had to come to terms with this. I think what's been hidden has become less hidden as, as a result of AIDS. And I, <laughs> it shouldn't have had to happen this way though. When I was, uh, how old was I? I used to, when I was like in college or something, I had this idea. I thought it would just be great if um, someday uh, everybody who was gay would just wake up and have green hair. And we'd all have to go to our jobs. We'd all have to go to school. And everybody out there would look and say, oh, I know about somebody who's gay. Well, and then they'd, they'd get over it and life would go on and, and we wouldn't be such a scary enigma. Well, that didn't happen. AIDS came instead, and I think that's kind of the same thing, but two things have happened. We didn't all just wake up with green hair. A lot of people also woke up with light green hair, like our supporters, you know, our hidden supporters, mm -hmm. our parents, you know. There's a bigger, there's a bigger turnout than, than we would have expected. So for all those people that are dying, that's not the way we wanted it. But I think it'll have a positive effect on our lives someday. Thank you, Sarah. It's a high price, an incredible price. Um, but I think you're right. It's um, a terrible price. Yeah. But for those of us who are living, do something with it, you know? Thank you. In the years after I interviewed Sarah Besser, she became a highly recognized statewide activist on a range of LGBTQ-related equal rights issues, and for a time was the board president of the Juno chapter of the League of Women Voters, the first out lesbian to hold that position. Sarah even inspired her parents to pick up the activist ball. In the 1990s, they helped found the Juno chapter of PFLAG, and Sarah's mother, as a vocal proponent of LGBTQ rights and marriage equality, often testified at the state capitol and campaigned door-to-door -door at her daughter's side. Sarah is now retired and lives with her spouse Juanita in New Mexico. When I asked her what drew them to New Mexico, she explained that they fell in love with the landscapes, food, cultural diversity, and the abundant sunlight. Having interviewed Sarah in the gloom of an Alaska November, I get it. Thank you to everyone who makes Making Gay History. Story editor Inga Detaya, associate producer Ali Lemer, audio engineer Kathleen Conti, researcher Brian Faree, photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media producers Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Special thanks to our founding editor and producer Sarah Birmingham and our founding production partner Jenna Weiss Berman. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you to the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division for their assistance. And thank you to Con Edison for their generous support of our education work. Season 10 of this podcast 
has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, the Kipper Family Foundation, Christopher Street Financial, Mary Cadigan and Lee Wilson, Brian, Christine, and Alex White, and scores of other individual supporters. Head to makinggayhistory.com, where you'll find all our previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. And please keep those five-star iTunes ratings coming, so more people can discover our proud history through the voices of the people who lived it. Making Gay History has been downloaded in more than 200 countries and territories around the world, and we appreciate your emails from near and far, especially a recent one from a young gay man in Libya. Thank you for writing and for reminding us that there is so much work yet to be done until LGBTQ people are free to be themselves the world over. You're in our thoughts. I'm Eric Marcus. So long, until next time.